0: Are you looking for a fun activity to do this Halloween? Well, Murder in the Rain has you covered. This year we are excited and honored to be partnering with Low Bar Corral at Revolution Hall for their Halloween party. For those who don't know about one of my favorite Portland activities, Low Bar Corral is a group sing-along party for every skill and competence level. Ben and his team of famous musicians will lead us through some Halloween-themed songs, such as Don't Fear the Reaper and I Want Candy breaking the groups down into harmonies until we sound like a chorus of angels. From hell. On Tuesday the 31st, Murder in the Rain will be joining in in the festivities. You can come by and meet us, pick up some merchandise, hear us tell some spooky stories between songs, and sing your bloody heart out. Who, Low Bar Chorale and Murder in the Rain, along with surprise musical guests. What, hosting a badass sing-along for theater kids, karaoke queens, and casual toe-tappers. Where? The show bar at Revolution Hall. When? Halloween night. Doors are at 6.30, show starts at 7.30, but come early to get a creepy cocktail, delicious dinner, preferred parking, and suitable seats. Why? To have an amazing time. We're going to sing, we're going to have a raffle, and we're going to admire everyone's costumes. This show is 21 and over. For tickets, visit lowbarcorral.com. That's L-O-W-B-A-R-C-H-O-R-A-L-E.com, And be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook as they have events every other Tuesday. We hope to see you there. It will be a frightfully good time. <laughs> this is Murder in rowney alicia holland and josh mccullough tell true crime stories of the pacific northwest murder in the rain contains graphic content listener discretion is advised
1: Part 1 of The Prowler, I told you about the murders of Mary Ann Polreich, Carol Beeth, and Randy Levine. Mary Ann was raped and killed in an unknown location, her body left posed after death. Carol and Randy were blitzed in their beds as they slept, beaten, raped, and mutilated. In Part 2, I'll tell you about the murderer of these women, a sinister man that began life as a lonely, unwanted child who would grow to become the first person ever tried for serial murder in King County, Washington. The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears, and with anger, some kind of crime in revenge for the rejection, and with the crime, guilt, and there is the story of mankind. That's John Steinbeck from East of Eden, quoted by Jack Olson in Charmer, and by me right now. George Russell was born April 2nd, 1958, 32 years later, he would be a killer three times over, but as I'm sure we can all relate, he started out as a little tiny baby. At only a few months old, he was sent to live with his grandmother Ernestine and four aunts after his mother, Joyce Boone, moved away to attend Florida AM University, taking George's older sister Erica with her. George lied, calling his time in Florida a Huck Finn type of childhood, which he described as lots of sunshine and adventures but it was said he spent most of his time playing alone. When George was six, his mother, who had just received her master's, scooped him up from Florida and they moved to Washington. The move was due to Joyce Boone's recent marriage to Dr. Wanzel Mobley, the official dentist of the University of Washington Huskies football team. When asked for a single term to describe Joyce Mobley's manner, a childhood friend of George's deemed her ominous. He said she had a thin voice with a touch of British. Her aim was a sophisticated affect. She was active in Seattle's Black Arts West Theater Group. The newly blended family moved into Dr. Mobley's home on Mercer Island. George Russell Jr. was one of very few black persons on Mercer Island and in the Pacific Northwest at large. In the 1970 census, Mercer Island had a total population of 19,047. Like most of the Pacific Northwest, It was overwhelmingly white, with the tallies for Negro at 128 and Other at 204. The parental reins holding George were lax at best. He ran free with few consequences beyond the rolling of eyes from his family. Across 1971 to 1972, with little to no parental guidance, young George sought it elsewhere. After getting into trouble for truancy, he began work as an extra hand at the Mercer Island Police Station. The cops thought closer proximity to them and a sense of responsibility around the station would do him well. And it did, for a while. In May of 1973, one month after George turned 15, he and two classmates ran away from school and were not found until the next afternoon. Somehow they'd traveled from Mercer Island to Cle Elum, a small town nearly 80 miles southeast of Seattle. On July 17, 1973, When Led Zeppelin played the Seattle Center Coliseum, George sneaked nine teens into the concert with a pair of parking attendant jackets he'd stolen. Later that summer, George and two other friends went into Seattle, ending up at a porno theater called the Green Parrot, which they snuck into through an alley, a fire escape, and across rafters to reach George's secret peeping hole.
0: That's some teenage tenacity. Could either of you tell kind of the tone of that? Was it that he was, you know maybe having these perversions that were starting to grow and thought his friends would be cool with it? Or was it like a, I'm showing off how cool I am with I, access to it A little porn. of both,
2: I think. I think okay. for me, I was getting the sense of he's pushing boundaries mm. to kind of be the leader. And he's kind of an outsider sense. anyway. So it's like. But then a lot of it was also curiosity. But yeah, I think he got a thrill out of being like the weird outsider right.
1: too. And the one with like the secret knowledge, mm-hmm. the expert. Yeah. He, could, he could do anything like that. At, yeah. And never get, get really caught for it. George Russell entered high school in September of 1973. He was highly skilled at games like backgammon, chess, and poker, but he struggled to find a challenging opponent. George was small and agile on the basketball court, garnering him the childhood nickname The Fly. He was also called The Mouth and Chicken George because he was quick to pick a fight and even quicker to run from one. He also kept a list of dead schoolmates As Mercer Island suffered from an enormous teen suicide rate, brought on by the pressures of island life. Quote Tokenism happens when someone is viewed by the dominant majority group as a representative of a minority group. For instance, a black person surrounded by white people. In this example, the sole black person is put in the position to speak on behalf of all black people in the entire African diaspora on various topics. George was the token person of color in nearly every facet of his life. At some point, George's stepdad, Dr. Mobley, began an affair with a woman named Chris. This fractured the home, and Joyce Mobley took a position at the University of Maryland to get away from her husband's new relationship. In late December 1974, she again took George's sister Erica with her, abandoning him to be raised by Mercer Island, which was a horrible parent. George always tried to play it off like he wasn't hurt by their departure. He pretended outwardly that they wanted him in Maryland with them, and that he only stayed in place because he loved Washington so deeply. Soon after Joyce and Erica moved across the country, Dr. Mobley's new partner Chris moved into the home. Quote, Years after George's mother had left for good, she was still squabbling with the dentist about property rights in the Mercer Island home. Joyce and the not-so-good doctor were never legally married, so proceedings went on and on. Months after his mother and sister's move, George lost access to his longtime clubhouse, the Mercer Island Police Station. This was after several parents called to complain that details from their children's confidential police records were being leaked. He was no longer welcome on the property unless he was being arrested. George was then sent to live off Mercer Island with Dr. Michael Washington, a college classmate of Dr. Mobley's. Dr. Mike was a bit much. He thought tough love would mend George's cat-burgling ways. His day would start at a quarter to five a.m. with chores. On days where there were none, Dr. Mike would make George go duck hunting with them. When they returned, George would have to clean their gear before dinner and bedtime. The arrangement didn't last long, and George was soon back living on the streets. In 1976, George was charged with criminal trespass, marijuana possession, second degree burglary, and possession of stolen property. For those, he was sentenced to three days in jail, then four more after another offense, and 32 more days after he was released and committed more of his petty crimes. George dropped out of high school during his senior year, in 1977. Before he left for good, he was failing many classes, and rarely showed up at all. This was the year George acquired a police scanner, which he used to stay steps ahead of any police searching for him. It was such a frequent occurrence, and George so smooth and charming, his activities were tolerated, nearly embraced as a personality quirk, more tokenism. The items he stole were ultimately harmless, though, usually food, clothing, pocket change, sometimes cash or jewelry, and so he skated and skated until he was no longer a kid. Judges and police took it easy on him because he always struggled to exist in Mercer Island's highly competitive ecosystem. He was trouble, but not the bad kind. George was crying out for help, and those around him would only react with an eye roll and an, oh, George. He never paid for a crime as a youth so he came to believe he never would. It was also noted by anyone observing George that as he got older, his friends stayed the same age. To high school kids, he was a wonder. Quick-witted, elusive, and seemingly well-read. George was like a slick wise man to the teens he drew in with his ability to score beer and cannabis for. Police were well aware of George's social group. They watched him from afar buying beer at a 7-Eleven and then stashing it in the woods for some kids. Still, they did nothing to avert this behavior. In 1979, Dr. Mobley and a colleague became the first dentist charged with Medicaid fraud in Washington State. Mobley lost his dentistry license for a time, and in 1982, he was ordered to surrender it for three years after he was once again charged with fraud. Tensions in the Mobley home were high. This was the time George began living outside the home permanently. Crashing on friends' couches when allowed, and any other shelter he could find when he wasn't. From 1983 until his release from King County Jail on May 18, 1987, George had spent two and a half years in jail. The rest of the time he lived on the streets, robbing and scamming as a daily practice.
0: Was that stint in jail just... Those things you're mentioning, robbing and things of that nature.
1: Car theft, prowling, minor burglaries, stealing anything, anytime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was just, yeah, that's all he did. He'd just served seven months. George was, quote, the only prisoner who broke out of the city's temporary holding facility. He was being held for prowling cars when he kicked out and then crawled through a window to escape. In early 1988, George, now 30, got a job at a Nintendo arcade. After eight months, he was fired when it was found he'd stolen $23,000 from his employer. George had nowhere to stay, and he was forced to sleep mostly in dumpsters and unlock cars. Can you imagine a Nintendo arcade? I've never heard of such a thing.
2: I know.
0: But But, also that much money, especially back
1: then. Yeah.
0: That's a lot that
2: you're... Was he just, like, skimming from the till? I think it
1: was every day, yeah. They said that he skimmed over the the course of eight months. And that
2: was, like, clipping he did... At a lot of jobs for oh yeah he worked at a nightclub too didn't he before
1: that and he did the same thing and eventually got fired for it it's really
2: interesting to think too
0: of him as an individual because you can hear some of the things and go oh he's been abandoned by his parents he really has nowhere to live so he's just trying to survive so yeah he's gonna steal food and maybe steal a car to have shelter but then these other things that have like that nefarious undertone and different intentions.
1: To see what he can get away with. Yeah.
2: I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but they talk a lot in the book about like how he would sleep in unlocked houses and like closets and like all these little tucked away places, which I found to be really creepy. Yeah, I
1: don't get into the specifics of that, but yeah. He's a
2: frogger. And then the other thing that was interesting, though, is everyone described him as very clean cut. And like always appeared nice. Hmm. So I'm like, what an interesting Yeah, way to that, live. that would be hard to do when to you maintain don't have that, access. That image. To, yeah. But I think yeah. he would sneak into some sort of locker room. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah I, I believe, yeah, all over all over town he had a million spots. places to do those sorts of things. Yeah. He wow. knew he knew all the little yeah, secret places. And he was very good at breaking into things too. He could yep. he could break into just about any place that he wanted to. Well, and I'm sure Brazen,
0: he Oh yeah. He, Stole police reports and didn't get in trouble from the police, you know?
2: Just so. to cause drama at school. Yeah. That's what's and, crazy. Yeah, and
1: again to show that he's, he was an expert and that he was like a mm. big man in town, yeah. yeah.
2: All about that secret access. Yeah.
0: Interesting.
1: Which everyone liked at first and then it, and then he kind of got spoiled mm. yeah, by so his they behavior. Were yeah. The ones the under the bed, yeah. George traveled lightly. He carried everything of importance to him in a few duffel bags, one of which he kept padlocked though nothing seemingly of value was inside. The bag merely held some folded scraps of paper with little notes written on them and the couple of clothing changes he owned. He also carried several books in his duffel bags, Crime Scene Search and Physical Evidence Handbook, as well as books on Ted Bundy and hillside strangler Kenneth Bianchi. In recent years, when police picked him up, they often found him armed with a knife, anything from a kitchen knife to an old bayonet. Police never heard of Russell using the knife to hurt someone, but they had information he had brandished a knife on one occasion. Officers didn't fear him. Quote, there are people like that. They don't assault police officers. They make you chase them. A month after the first homicide, lead detective Marvin Skeen said at a case strategy session, we got nothing. The second killing would take place 17 days later. George Russell lived by night. He was always on the move, and he had the ability to maintain a crisp, clean appearance despite his lack of consistent housing. He always carried his padlocked duffel bag with him and would change into a fresh shirt when he hit the East Side clubs. There he fostered an image of George as the guy who could get you past the bouncer, score you a good table, the guy who was friends with everyone. George was a well-known nightlife figure, enjoyed by most, and treated with suspicion by others. He was too smooth to be real but he was a great dancer. George was the guy Detective Skeen was interviewing in the days after the murder of Marianne Polreich, when another officer approached to let him know that George was bullshit. This was the same day the manager at Papagayo's had to tell them to search the club's lost and found box for Marianne's purse, and also the day they found out her Camaro had been in the parking lot for four days. As far as the killer, there was George, but as far as suspects, there were few and Carol Beef's boyfriend, Mike Sewell, was one of them. Their relationship was on again, off again, after 18 months of living together. They were planning a trip to the British Virgin Islands in the time leading up to her rape and murder. Mike and Carol had spoken briefly on the phone at 11 p.m. the night she was killed. He was to meet her at 6 o'clock the next morning at a tanning salon, but he overslept, and Carol was already dead. Mike didn't find out about the murder until the next evening, when he went to Papagayo's for dinner. He left as soon as he was informed and drove to Carol's house. When he arrived, Mike was questioned by detectives until 3 a.m. They started out nice, he said. They ended mean. Despite his repeated denials, they told him they knew his blue Corvette had been seen the morning of the murder, and then he might as well admit he'd done it. After constantly drilling it into my head that I was there, I said, if I was there, I don't remember it. Their persuasion was pretty intense. It was not a kind thing that they did.
0: I don't remember her situation, but if he had been at the tanning booth in the morning, would that have, was there any way he could have diverted
1: this or had it already happened? Oh, yeah, it had already happened. So it probably happened three or four hours before. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the middle of the night. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, she, she went out, met with him. They had a discussion about that the trip they were going to take. She drove home and she was home just before 3 a.m., Okay, and so between it was definitely between three and oh, okay. And so
0: basically, he just would have found out sooner. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: Sewell, a project manager for a construction company, was eventually dropped as a suspect after hair evidence from the crime scene was found not to match him. Now back to before the first murder. It seemed like George was losing his grip on the image he cultivated and projected to the world. His mask was slipping off. On February twelfth, nineteen ninety. George was arrested at his family's home on a domestic assault charge. He'd assaulted his sort of girlfriend Mindy the day before, slamming her into a wall and smashing up her apartment after she dumped out his duffel bag during an argument. Mindy had multiple contusions and a hairline fracture in one vertebrae in her neck from the attack.
0: So at this point he's in more stable housing. He like has yes, a place. But okay.
1: he's regularly
2: gaslighting this girl because they're like hooking up sometimes okay. and very confusing and I believe he stole stuff too
1: yeah and he just moved in I think they met yeah he just was like I live here now he just showed up with his stuff and he was there
2: until she finally was like you need to leave and then he did but then the cops had to get called it was a mess yeah And that was when he brought like a younger lover over.
1: Oh, yeah. An ex-girlfriend to- who was 16. 16, <gasps> yep.
2: who was a gymnast or something mm-hmm. or like a dancer. And, and he's how old at this time?
1: Like 30. 30. Oh. 30 he, something.
2: He yeah. This is a thing he does. But the girl's like, wait, you're like my boyfriend. And now suddenly there's this young girl flirting with you. And you guys are being like openly sexual. It was very Weird. bizarre. Again, pushing boundaries, pushing yep. limits.
1: Later. George was arrested at Black Angus on a parole violation and spent five days in jail. The person who called the reporter was GB Coffin. GB was the server who was best friends with Carol Beath. In Part 1, I spoke about George watching GB and Carol talk about his creepiness. After that, he and GB's animosity grew. He would antagonize and whisper veiled threats as she passed by. GB would complain to the manager, who would kick George out of Black Angus but only for a few days. One night in March, George confronted GB, telling her to stay out of his business. She had scoffed when a customer said George told them he worked undercover for the police. George followed her around the restaurant, threatening to get her fired. GB called out to security, and two doormen dragged him outside. On his way out, George screamed, You've had it, bitch. I'm coming back. I'm going to kill you. George was permanently banned from Black Angus, and GB moved to Hawaii soon after. Friday, June 22, 1990, Marianne Ann Polreich went to Papagayo's with friends, who parted ways with her around 9.30 p.m. Her body was found early the next morning. That same night, Russell borrowed friend Smith McLean's truck and did not return it until the morning. Smitty was despondent and very upset with himself when he approached off-duty officer Mike Bechdolt To tell him about his 4x4 baby. There was nothing much the officer could do. Smitty wasn't up for filing an official report, so he sat on a curb with his head in his hands for a while before walking across the parking lot to Denny's. Days after Marianne's murder, it was Officer Bechtolt who'd told lead detective Marvin Skeen if you want to find out everything about Papagayos, talk to George Russell. He was there just about any night. It was a hell of a lead that wouldn't pay off for a while. In the summer of 1990, George was crashing in a condo at Villa 156 in Bellevue, which is only a mile and a half from Papagayo's. He stayed there with four young women, Barbara, Susan, Jennifer, and Sarah, who had all just graduated from Bellevue's Interlake High School. George met Barbara at the nearby Denny's one night, and they hit it off well. He poured on the charm, and she was only 18, living on her own for the first time. George ended up attending a couple of parties the ladies threw at their condo. And after the second one, he brought in his duffel bags, spent the night, and never left. He was revered by most of the roommates, except for Susan, who refused to fall for his crap. They were initially relieved to have someone like George there to protect them. A few days after they'd first moved in, a prowler had broken in and rifled through the house in the middle of the night. Spoilers, it was George. He had actually watched them move in and engineered meeting them at Denny's that first night.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: George found them to be easy marks, but their friendships would come back to nail him down at trial.
2: But I found it interesting, like, how easily he could manipulate the living situation for to benefit him. And then the minute he started to realize that they were going to flip on him, he just was like, OK, I'm gone. And he'd, like, pack mm. his duffel bag and go. The other weird thing is he didn't like his duffel bag being touched and the roommate... The one that they didn't get along, she went through it and was like, look, look at all the stuff he's stolen.
1: Oh, yeah. It had like their shoes, clothes, all (gasps) sorts of things. Yeah. Like
2: fancy Nikes or something. jewelry. Yeah.
1: He was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a pair of Nikes. Yeah. It was was the boyfriend or the brothers. Yeah. There was a plague of prowlings and home burglaries, which George had committed in the areas he frequented. This was also true in the neighborhoods where Carol Beath and Randy Levine lived. Police started to contact everyone they could who knew George Russell. Detective Dale Foote called GB Coffin, the former Black Angus server. Because of George's unpredictable and alarming behavior, she had moved out of state, but she had some information detectives were eager to hear about, like George's volatile, murder threatening reaction to GB 86 him. After she did that, she felt that George hated her. GB had questions of her own for police. Since everyone felt she and Carol Beeth the second to be murdered, were so similar in their build, personality, and looks, GB wondered if Carol was killed in lieu of her. Talking to George about being kicked from the Angus, he acknowledged that yes, he had been 86 by GB, and he also shared that he did know Randy and Marianne, but only as acquaintances. However, he lied, saying he did not know of Carol Beeth, nor had he been to her place of work, Kuchina Kuchina. On October 11, 1990, Upholstery in Smitty McLean's truck tested positive for blood, which matched Marianne Polreich. DNA was tested, but this was still 1990. The closest outcome that could be determined was that only 6% of the white population would have been a match to the DQ-alpha subtype. This included Marianne Polreich. Fluid collected from Mary's body showed it was a match to George's blood type. The sperm that had been collected from Mary was also tested. It was shown to match 8% of the black population including George Russell. These were promising numbers. Detective Skeen, the first responding detective at the first scene, the body site of Marianne Polreich said, and this is a longer quote from Jack Olson's charmer. Skeen presented the findings, along with his theory of the crimes, to the King County prosecuting attorney's office. As he and Detective Foot and the other investigators saw it, the Polright killing had been impromptu and the others premeditated. He explained George convinces Marianne to join him in Smitty's truck for a drink of Rumplemints. He wants sex, and we know from her personality she would resist. He loses his temper and kills her. Now he has a big problem, a dead body in the truck. George is a thinker, and he still remembers being 86 by GB Coffin, so he offloads the body behind the black Angus, and makes sure it gets maximum media attention by posing her as though she's in her coffin. Coffin, get it? That's the way his brain works. Stupid clues for stupid cops. Coffin. GB coffin.
0: Oh. Mm -hmm.
1: Wow. The whole East Side starts buzzing about this killing, just the kind of attention George wanted. He always talked and read about the Hillside Stranglers and John Wayne Gacy and Bundy and the lack of black serial murderers. But before he can get to his real target, which is GB, she skips. He starts thinking, well, what about a substitute? What about a friend? That's when he murders Carol Beeth in her sleep. He'd already been burglarizing her place at night.
0: So he's targeting this woman both in leaving people at her place of work and killing her best friend because she kicked him out of the bar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She she made it so that he could never come back. But it was also his actions being 86 that made it like a, a true permanent ban because it was true that the manager would do that over and over. Right. Kick him out. And then let him come back right? because he was just always around and people just eventually had to like capitulate to, hit to what he wanted, which is mm-hmm. free reign of these places.
0: Well, and you really think about that in the context of his life. That might have been the only form of family and or community, community that he yeah. had either had or especially in that moment, the only thing he had access to.
1: Yeah. And very much like having the access to the police station removed.
0: Mm -hmm. It's like, these are the people that are giving me attention. They're talking to me.
1: We exist at the same level here. Yeah. In this club. Yeah. Yeah. This scenario and the supporting evidence made it hard to deny George's involvement. On January 10th, George was charged with the first-degree murder of Marianne Polreich. Conveniently, George was already in the King County Jail for outstanding traffic warrants, and he was set to be released later that day. He was instead held on a half a million dollars bail.
0: That is so lucky. Yeah, that could have led to a major either manhunt or not finding him or him just deciding to go out with a blaze of glory.
1: Yeah, he was escalating. And once he was certain that they were probably looking at him for that stuff, I'm sure he would have gotten out and just done it again immediately or or as soon as he could. Mm -hmm. After Russell was questioned by the police. He telephoned one of his roommates and asked her to give the police his copy of Crime Scene Search and Physical Evidence Handbook. The handbook outlines police procedures in gathering evidence from the scene of a crime and contains chapters on fingerprints and body fluids. The book does not contain a chapter on DNA testing. If it had, George Russell would have been more cautious and may have been impossible to link to the murders.
0: Mm-hmm. Did
1: not quite know it all. March 4th, 1991, George Russell pleaded innocent to one charge of first-degree murder and two charges of aggravated first-degree murder. In jail that night, he gave a telephone interview to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and denied the charges.
0: Out of curiosity, if you know this, do you know which victim it was that had just The murder charge, that there weren't aggravated circumstances?
1: The first uh, murder, the murder of Marianne Polreich, because it wasn't premeditated. Oh, okay. It was impromptu. Okay. Yep. And now the trial, and a quote from prosecutor Jeff Baird's opening remarks. He points to photos of the victims displayed for the jury and says, Mary Polreich, Carol Beeth, Randy Levine, this is the way they looked when they were alive. This is not the way they will be remembered. We will find ourselves for a long, long time to come, at inopportune and unexpected moments, remembering them the way Mr. Russell intended us to remember them. He made caricatures of them. He made cartoons, grotesque, obscene, cruel, and unforgettable. This is the creative work of George Walterfield Russell. I'm going to talk today about Mr. Russell's work, about the themes we see in his work, about the materials he used, the terms he used, the tools he employed the gloves he used, and the paint he had to work with. Prosecutor Baird told the jury Russell was acquainted with each of the women and told friends the victims were sluts who used men. Smitty McLean said on the stand that after loaning his meticulously clean prized truck to George Russell, it was returned on June 23rd in disgusting condition. Smitty said, When I had been hunting before, you can remember vividly when you cut open an animal, what it smells like, beyond vomit. Smell-wise, it was the most violent vomit I had ever smelled, if that. It was beyond awful. It was all over the interior of the truck. All over. I also smelled a faint smell of, like a lemon-scented Lysol, as if someone had tried to clean it up or cover the smell. There were red stains, with a particularly large one on the driver's seat, and a whitish substance all over the interior. McLean testified he pulled out the floor carpets, put a towel down on the driver's seat, and drove to an auto-detailer, who took one look, one sniff, and asked, Did all hell break loose in there? The truck also yielded significant evidence, and fibers found around where Polreich's body was discovered matched those from rugs in the truck. Another prosecution witness was Susan Jetley, one of George's condo roommates, who was able to connect him to Carol Beeth. Susan had never liked George, so she was happy to provide one of the only statements relating to their paths crossing. When the prosecutor asked, do you remember anything that Mr. Russell told you about that killing or about the victim, she said, Carol was an acquaintance. She was at the same social spots he was. Carol Beath's daughter Kelly also took the stand. Knowing her testimony would help get justice for her mother, she was able to contain her emotions as she answered the prosecutor's questions, detailing the trauma of discovering her mother's body. Kelly's voice was soft but unshaken until she left the courtroom and the emotions overtook her. George's former roommate, Barbara de Groot, testified that three weeks after Carol Beeth's murder, she drove George to a wooded area on Mercer Island. She waited as George went into the woods. When he returned, he had a paper sack in his hand, which was full of silver dollars. After Carol's murder, her family members informed police that several Crown Royal bags full of silver dollars were missing from her place. Carol had complained over time of small amounts going missing from the bags. Detective Skeen said, regarding the third and final murder, George Russell sets up an alibi with five or six kids in his motel room and sneaks out and blitzes Randy Levine the same way, asleep and helpless. She'd rebuffed him twice, and he had some kind of goofy idea that she was cheating on one of his friends. Barbara Groot also testified that on Thursday, August 30, 1990, she... George Russell and several friends stayed the night at a motel before a trip to Canada over the Labor Day weekend. She said George left the room sometime in the night wearing dark clothing and did not return until 6 a.m. Randy Levine lived about a mile from the motel by car, but the walking distance was shorter. The state presented further evidence connecting George to Randy Levine. Carol Beath's boyfriend, Mike Sewell, shared a story of once going to Randy's home with George to drop her off. The following night, Mike's phone rang. Picking it up, his ear was met with the distraught and angered yells of Randy. She claimed George had just dropped by her house, seeking a ride to Mercer Island. She was furious that after meeting only once, George felt it was okay to come by. Mike couldn't do much but talk to George, telling him it was uncool that he went by Randy's home. George responded that he didn't think it was that big a deal. It would later be learned that George had made a habit of going by her home many times before committing the murder. Another of George's friends, an unnamed woman, testified that she had been given a ring by George. This gift was given not long after Labor Day, when Randy Levine was killed. The friend wore the ring a few times before passing it on to a friend of her own. That friend pawned it. When police had learned of this during the investigation, they were able to track the ring down. It was positively identified by Randy's sister-in-law, as a ring she had given Randy. And now a tiny portion of Prosecutor Baird's closing remarks. Mary Polreich, Carol Beeth, and Andrea Levine. Mr. Russell has had his success. You will never be able to hear these names without seeing and feeling images of cruelty, depravity. That's why I'm going to end the way I began, with the photos of these women in life. It's the least I can do. Individually, he murdered them. Together. They are the collected works of George Walterfield Russell. You can find he really is something special, something especially dangerous, something especially powerful, something especially cruel, and guilty as charged. In his closing arguments, public defender Brad Hampton charged that evidence that could help exonerate Russell had been excluded from the trial. He said, there's a lot of evidence you haven't seen. It's been held back. When an objection to that charge was lodged by the prosecutor, the judge excused the jury and admonished Hampton for being completely inappropriate. Hampton later told the jury that if Russell, a dentist's stepson who grew up on Mercer Island, were indeed a serial killer, there would have been more victims sooner.
0: (laughs) Mm, Okay.
1: He got a defense, you know? Wasn't great.
0: That's one argument.
1: And but also what else could they have possibly? What yeah. else did they have to say? Yeah,
0: what direction are you going? He
1: was a creep, but Do you really think so? The day after jury deliberations began, the Seattle Times published an article espousing Papagayo's jungle theme, its huge varied menu, and its large portions. The article did little to improve business. And as I said in part one, it eventually was turned into a Chuck E. Cheese, where a kid can be a kid, right? (laughs) Yeah. October 25th, 1991, George was found guilty of two counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of first-degree murder. His was the first serial murder case tried in King County, Washington. Wednesday, November 27th, 1991, George stayed silent and chewed gum during sentencing. He was given two life imprisonment terms plus 28 years and is currently imprisoned at Clallam Bay Correction Center, located on the northern tip of Washington's Olympic Peninsula. He is 65 years old. The Polreich family attended every court hearing. Marianne's brother, Eddie, said the family wanted George Russell to see how much hurt he'd caused. After the sentencing, Marianne's mother, Nancy, said through tears, I feel like I could almost fly. 82% of American serial killers are white. Only 15% are Black and 2.5% are Hispanic. And please uh, talk as much as anyone would like to. Well, thank you
2: for that invitation. I can definitely (laughs) fulfill that. Yes. In an (laughs) unknown... Why why'd you take it after the last one?
1: I guess if it was fine. It was fine. It was. Uh, in an unknown location. Her That's body- as
0: far as he got in the writing.
2: <laughs> He's like, all right, can you guys help me out? <laughs> can we fill blinks. in the rest of these 11 pages where I just put <laughs> Emily talks, Alicia talks, Josh
1: talks? It just says dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Carolyn. Was
2: that you? That the was little lip t- popping? Yeah. You- lip popping. You cherry popping daddy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I- you said to talk whenever I wanted. That's so. true. <laughs> You actually gave me explicit permission for this behavior. You did it to yourself, you little shit.
1: Check check it. Boom, boom, boom. Pow, pow, perfect. Pow, pow, perfect. <laughs> That's what I say. This is crashing anaconda. Conda. <laughs> anaconda. <gasps> Look out. Scary snake. The snakes out there this big. Uh, Ice cube. Dernies <laughs> that dir- 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 start- first name <laughs> Behavior, behavior. <laughs> behavior behavior
0: do you know the word is behavior uh, I think that bike startled you actually <laughs>
1: good talk, we, talk <laughs> we have cold conversations did you have hot dog yesterday I Maybe. had
0: hot dogs yesterday I think so <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for a tornado hello it's Charles entertainment cheese is his Christian name wow
1: That's a good name. (laughs) My name is Entertainment Cheese. Charles
0: Entertainment Cheese.
1: At your service.
0: That's when his mom is mad at him.
1: Wednesday, November 27th, 1991. (gasps) (gasps) Your birthday. That's my birthday. I was 11. Barracuda.
0: Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain@gmail.com at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore and my box.